Технически Telegram заблокировать в России нельзя. It's technically impossible to block Telegram in Russia. This is Mikhail Klimarov, the executive director of the Internet Protection Society, or Общество защиты интернета, or as we like to call it, OZI. OZI. Co-founded in 2016 by two big heads in Navalny's campaign. That's Alexei Navalny. OZI is a non-profit organization, though it's not officially registered. It's more like a network, network idea, ideological organization, community, community, community. Anyway, OZI positions itself as a community of internet and IT specialists and activists who attempt to protect or defend the internet, primarily in Russia, from censorship and regulation. No, what to при той архитектуре блокировок, технической организации блокировок, дизайн, техникал дизайн, система блокировок... With the given architecture of the block, the way the block is technically organized, the technical design of the blocking system, it's not possible to block Telegram. But it is possible to do it by some other means. For example, send people with Telegram on their phones to prison, as an example. Then yes, people will actually be afraid to use Telegram and will stop using it. But that's the kind of scenario I would really not like to see in Russia, where people are stopped and their phones are searched. Uh, there you have it. Honestly, I'm an optimist. I think that they won't block it. They won't be able to. And right now they're trying and trying. There will be a certain amount of pressure specifically socially, and ultimately they'll drop the whole thing and quit this nonsense. Because specifically from the point of view of the government, it really is nonsense, pointless, relentless work that makes things difficult for everyone else. It doesn't do any good for anyone. This is the meat of the podcast. <laughs> have, you ever, have, you ever caught your, have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? This shit feels like I won't ever make it home. From St. Petersburg and Brooklyn, this is She's in Russia, I'm Lily. And I'm Smith. Oh, she's so okay. excited that her name is Smith. <laughs> she never had is, another name. What is today's episode about, Lily? Smith never knows what the episode's <laughs> about. Today is a big one, folks. Today is big fish, as they say. As you might have guessed, this episode today is about Telegram. Today's episode is part one of a two-part series, stay tuned, on the Telegram case. Smith, now that you know what we're going to talk about today, can you break <laughs> that down for us? All right. So let's start with what Telegram is, in case you've somehow missed it. Don't be mean to the people. They're not that dumb. You guys know what Telegram is, right? Okay. You guys all follow us on Telegram, right? Yeah, you better. Go follow our channel at She's in Russia. 
Um, at, at any rate, if you do not know, Telegram is a messenger app. It was created in 2013 by the Russian-born brothers Durov, Nikolai, and Pavel, who you may know from other popular works like Vcontact. And Telegram's two main claims to fame are that it's one, encrypted, sometimes and in some ways, and we'll get into that more in the future, and offers a different model for a more social messenger app, which we will also explain more in the future. In so the future. Basically this is, <laughs> in the future. In the future, the future of this episode. Distant future. Yes. <laughs> basically, this isn't your WhatsApp and signals. It's a kind of different thing. And overall, Telegram is fairly a fairly popular app in Russia. As of March of this past of this year, 2018, the app, the app had 200 million global users with about 350,000 users signing up daily. And about 7% of its users are in Russian. So that's about 14 million Russian users. By comparison, WhatsApp, which is the most popular messenger app in the world, which I like didn't realize that yeah. kind of. um it's kind of annoying but yeah. whatever is used by nearly 60 percent of russian smartphone possessors and 1.5 billion users globally yeah it's fucked up you guys are just giving all your data to facebook yeah well, here you go and we're giving oh, our data to pavel durov and yeah. we like that <laughs> okay but there should be like a wrestling match between pavel durov and uh zuckerberg oh yeah i'm sure people have made that comparison Durov would definitely win. Because he's like hot and Zuckerberg is like pale. Okay. Well, they're both pale actually. Okay. Anyway, as Mikhail referenced, since April 16th, the Russian government has been attempting, mostly unsuccessfully, to block access to Telegram in Russia. Why do they do that, Lily? Why does it do it? Why? So (laughs) strictly officially speaking... The Russian government is blocking Telegram because Telegram refused to give the government access to its users' communications. But let me give you a little timeline so that makes more sense. On July 12, 2017, so a year ago, the Russian Federal Security Service, the FSB, sent Pavel Durov a letter. The letter was asking him to provide the, quote, data necessary for the decoding of certain Telegram messages from six specific accounts whose owners were suspected of using Telegram to plan terrorist acts. Okay, on August 30th, 2017, Pavel, who we will refer to fondly and familiarly from now on as Pasha, or Pashinka, (laughs) responded (laughs) responded to the FSB's letter with a big, fat, privacy loving no. I will not share messages of six accounts, no. Fast forward to April of this year. This is now after Telegram has been warned again and fined for non-compliance, not giving over these decoding data things. Um, a Moscow... <laughs> wow, very technical. <laughs> uh, excuse me, I'm not for giving the data necessary for the decoding. Uh, a Moscow <laughs> court, okay, April of this year, rules to block the app entirely, as it, according to them, is not complying with the law. So April 16th of this year, of this year that's the day that Telegram was actually blocked. It was... A Monday. It was, yeah, and it was actually blocked. So the app was not really working or was working very shakily. From, in my case, the day it was blocked and for the first few days, it worked on my phone, but didn't work on my computer or vice versa. But it's not really the point. The point is people start using and sharing different VPNs and proxies in order to be able to use Telegram. VPNs and proxies, if you don't know, 
I know you know, Smith. Don't <laughs> I say do anything. Um, they're software that make like a, a computer. And <laughs> people know what software is. All right. So All this, right. This, this Does everybody know what a computer is? <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. They are software, but honestly, they appear to be an app, so that's easy for people, like an app. <laughs> Which news flashes software, everybody? <laughs> Just so you didn't know, that make your computer or your phone appear to be in a different location than it actually physically is, and it does this by placing an intermediate server between you and the internet. Real briefly, how this works: any device or server connected to the internet, so your phone, your computer, or a telegram server even, or a proxy server, for example, all of these things are assigned an IP address, which, amongst other things, reveals your device's physical location. So a VPN or a proxy server masks your device's IP address so that it says, instead of being in St. Petersburg, when I need to access certain blocked things, illicit illicit materials, I could be not in St. Petersburg. I can turn on my VPN and I can be in New York City. Uh, I can magically teleport there where Telegram, among other things, is not blocked. Huzzah. (laughs) So anyway, in the months since the block, um, so since April, Telegram has been working more and more stably, meaning now mostly I do not have to connect my VPN, mostly. Right, right, right. So what is so cool about Telegram? And as in like, why do we care about this application? Why are we dedicating two whole episodes to it? Well, there's something about Telegram. And I think uh, maybe it's the particular UX or maybe it's actually the people who use it. But in many ways, it's a unique gem of a messenger social network. Um, Kind of a unique phenomenon upon which we are officially from this moment on bestowing the name of social messengers. Write this down, folks. You heard it here first. Uh, So yeah, the app is a mix of just your regular old messenger, like I type to Lily, she types to me, group chats, which can have upwards of 10,000 members, but you can have normal group chats of like three or four people. And uh, here comes the special part, channels, which are like one-sided chats that function almost like a blog. Um, You can make a channel, any Telegram user can subscribe to it, and will be notified every time you write something there. It could be text, videos, photos, links, whatever. Popular channels tend to have tens of thousands of subscribers with really popular channels having in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, in some ways, Telegram offers a kind of sanctuary from other parts of the big, bad, scary internet. And this is kind of a twofold reasoning. On the one hand, it's the actual tech, the fact that it's encrypted. People feel safe writing and potentially broadcasting their opinions, and they can also do so anonymously by virtue of the way the app's built. And on the other hand, you have the like alleged values of, of Telegram as a company, the values they proclaim to uphold, namely freedom and privacy. When Telegram hit 200 million, million <laughs> monthly users, our dear Pavel Pasha Posh reaffirmed Telegram's values explicitly in, in an official blog post. He said, I quote, Our users have been and will always be our only priority. Unlike other popular apps, Telegram doesn't have shareholders or advertisers to report to. We don't do deals with marketers, data miners, or government agencies. Since the day we launched in August 2013, we have disclosed a 
we haven't disclosed. We have not disclosed a single byte of our users' private data to third parties. We operate this way because we don't regard Telegram as an organization or an app. For us, Telegram is an idea. It is the idea that everyone on this planet has a right to be free. Above all, we at Telegram believe in people. We believe that humans are inherently intelligent and benevolent beings that deserve to be trusted, trusted with freedom to share their thoughts, freedom to communicate privately, freedom to create tools. This philosophy defines everything we do. Pasha the optimist. Seriously. Impart this set of explicit values. Encourages a certain type of political freeman... Freeman. <laughs> Me. The app is just swarming it with Freeman. A certain type of Freeman. <laughs> it encourages a certain type of political freedom, arguably, within the application's ongoing discussions, etc. This isn't a true, like, proven theory. This is no. just something that I feel. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to give an example of a, a Telegram channel that is like a political, very popular channel, and it's called Stalin, Stalin Gulag. I think it's the most popular, or at least at one point it was the most popular uh, political channel with just under 300,000 subscribers. So the author's anonymous, or authors of the channel, and they basically post these long text posts, they're all texts providing socio-political commentary on whatever's happening in the moment in Russia, um, in Russian. And the tone is like, it's cynical, it has dark humor, it's highly critical. But like some of the topics that were recently commented on in the channel was the, um, the pension reforms that happened in Russia during the World Cup, the Yaravaya laws, which are laws we will talk about, racism during the World Cup. And there's like some interesting little social critiques, like this phrase used by Russians to be like, well, you understand. And it means like, instead of explaining like racistness or like sexist or some is some bad thing in what you're saying, you're just like, it's implied. You're like, you, you know what I mean. And then people are like, oh, yes. And like this post about that phrase. Wait, when you're saying a racist thing? Yeah, like, so the example was in the World Cup, it was the example was a journalist writing about how the French team was actually not French, but was all black, like, African descent people. Mm -hmm. And some part of the text, I guess, was something like, well, it's not that it's bad to be black, but it's just, well, you understand. <laughs> and And so Stalin Gulag was, like, tearing apart this article and was just being like or this phrasing and was just being like this phrase this like that phrase embeds or represents this like really sort of horrible part of russian society or this like mm -hmm. tendency this tendency like approach because when you say that it's like you're included in something but you don't know exactly what you're included in and you sort of agree with it without uncovering what it is that you're agreeing with which would be really if you did uncover it and make it explicit it would be very fucked up Right. So okay, that's interesting. That, that's the kind of thing that they do. I'm saying they because because I am forward thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually think it's a man. But anyway, the um so recently this channel got some extra attention because um in early July, our favorite Russian media outlet, RBC, published 
us I don't know like an investigative piece but sort of like oddly motivated which uncovered the identity allegedly of the author of this channel being like it's this guy this this man from from Dagestan from a city in Dagestan mm -hmm. and a few days after I mean everyone like since it's the most popular channel or one of the most popular channels in Telegram in general it, a lot of media started trying to get in touch with them and wanted to do articles and a few days after that the PR representative of the channel you know the, like the contact in the channel um, who could be the author of the channel it's unclear did an interview with the Russian journal Kommersant where they talk about Telegram and the attempt to block it among other things so the question was something like, what are the prospects that you see for Telegram channels? Prospects being like, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And the answer that they gave was, I don't know really what you mean or what you're like putting into the meaning of the word prospects. For example, we'll all die. And that's also a prospect and really not such a bad one. Imagine that you're lying in a coffin. If that's not very pleasant, imagine it's not you, but some hypothetical Sonia from Dagestan. The lid is sealed, but a small opening was left. And in the opening, a little tube was placed. There you have it. You were given this little tube, but dirt continues to be poured over you. Telegram is not salvation or rescue. It's that very same little tube. That is, it's a delay, an extension. <sighs> Damn. Right? Bleak. Isn't yeah. that intense? Yeah, that is intense. so intense. I think that's the end of the interview too. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> this was over text. Yeah, yeah. do you know? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I yeah. I really want to interview this person, but I'll talk. We'll talk uh, about that later. One day when we're famous. Okay. So, but of course, like people use Telegram for all sorts of things, and we spoke with Tanya Lokut about this. Lokut is a professor at the School of Communications at Dublin City University, and her research focuses on protests and digital media, and specifically on how people use technology in protest. If you start to drill down, and if you if you look at what people use Telegram and other similar services for. I mean, you know, okay, so maybe the elites that are the majority, on, I mean, I'm talking here about like the elites, not in the economic sense, but in the sense like, you know, intelligentsia or, you know, people who are more tech savvy in this case. Sure. They, so they use Telegram. They maybe follow all the political Telegram channels and they, you know, they, they talk about internet security and all that stuff. But there are also a lot of other people who use Telegram and other messengers for, for other things, you know, like they, I don't know, or Instagram, you know, some people use Instagram to do business and for them, it, these all, and Telegram as well. So they're, they're not necessarily using it for political debates. And so for these people, when they lose access to Telegram, they have a very different set of motivations for maintaining that access and for learning how to use proxies or VPNs. For some of them, it's business related because they run a small business that sells makeup or whatever, you know, nail and brow services, <laughs> hell knows what. And then there are other people who were so used to using all these um, free websites in Russia that uh, gave you access to um, eBooks for free. Uh. And then when those websites were blocked because of piracy reasons, um, a lot of them moved to places like Telegram where you, they create a little bot. And if you, you know, tweet, if you send a message to the bot with the name of the book, it'll send you a link to the book. So 
there are lots of different reasons why people use something like Telegram or, you know, other social media platforms. And I think depending on how convenient these things are for them, they some of them may or may not go to greater lengths and learn how to use proxies and VPNs. Like, you know, my mother-in-law, who's Russian, she's, you know, in her early 60s, and even she installed a proxy and learned how to use it because she wanted to have access to Telegram to talk to her children, you know, and her friends and whatever else. Right. So there's this kind of large swath of Telegram users, and there is a really wide spectrum of tech-savvy users, like... Within it. From people who... Within, within this, yeah, this group of u- total users, from people who know how to use a VPN. Like me. <laughs> like Lily, um, to the heart and soul of the Russian tech community. And by that, she means actually technical people, not the silky smooth tofu startup people who call themselves <laughs> right. tech who, people. Who, who don't know how to use a computer at all. So uh, that's internet and security specialists, system administrators, developers, etc. And... Yes, that is right. The Russian tech community's preferred platform of communication is chats and Telegram. So before migrating to settle in Telegram in about 2015, the tech community was centered on LiveJournal. Um, just to note, LiveJournal in Russia was very popular in the early kind of mid-2000s, despite it being an American company born and bred. And if you want to learn more about um, the RuNet in this era, and specifically LiveJournal, you should go check out our episode with Igor Belkin. And there's some speculation as to why people in general started leaving LiveJournal en masse. Some say it's because it just got outdated, like MySpace, for example. Poor Tom. Also, you say, you say, sorry to interrupt, but you say, despite it being an American company, but think about all the popular American companies. It's not that crazy. Well, yeah, but I guess the thing I'm s- s- really saying is like, yeah, okay, LiveJournal was popular in the States, but it was like really popular in okay. Russia. Okay, gotcha. Um, all right, so, yeah. Poor, poor, Tom. poor Tom. All right, so... So others point to the fact that people started leaving uh, LiveJournal after it was acquired by this Russian company called Soup Media Company, um, which made people feel like kind of less free to roam because suddenly it was owned by a Russian company. Okay, but the point of the matter is once the tech community left LJ live journal they floated around some mostly dead facebook groups before they solidly came to roost in telegram around 2015 nuzzled up to the warm teat of pavel durov (laughs) i know that's a really it's a mixed metaphor too so it's confusing um so mostly Wait, wise oh yeah right yeah they, they're roosting and they're, it's like are they chickens or lambs yeah, they don't know what they are are they a bird or a mammal um mostly they like as we were told are in group chats so not channels but chats where you can all talk mm. so so as you might imagine that means that there's kind of this loyal non-violent army of first responders to any kind of technical threat that the application itself might be exposed to, such as a government order block, maybe. Uh, so like, when the announcement came that Telegram was going to be blocked, people in these chats started building and sharing proxies so that by the time the block was actually implemented, they had functioning ways to get around it that they had shared with their friends and family long before any official solution, as in by the company itself, by the application itself, was released. Right. And as we know, uh, not everyone in Telegram by any means is a member of the tech community, 
building proxies to get around the block, etc. Some people might not even know what the heck a proxy is. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be shy if you're one of them. Well, we explained it, so you better know now. We explained it. According to Mikhail, the very same Mikhail from the Internet Protection Society, this fact, uh, this like discrepancy between technical knowledge is the single most, does that make sense, between technical, discrepancy in Uh. levels of technical knowledge um, amongst people, is the single most dangerous implication of the telegram block or sort of blocks in the internet in general. It exacerbates this existing socio-technological divide that further pushes the population into two unequal groups. On the one hand, you have people who are not tech savvy at all. Maybe they don't even use the internet, consume the majority of their information via the television, for example. We're talking about Russia. Uh, on the other hand, <laughs> sorry, but not American. Okay, Americans do too. I'm just saying, just to confirm, we're not yeah, talking yeah. about global right. users. Um, right, right. On the other hand, you have like the other group is generally speaking more tech tech savvy population that does use the internet that importantly cares about the internet cares about using the internet and access to it and as you might imagine these two groups of people have very different ideas of what it means to have a free unblocked internet the consequences of blocking for society overall blocking in general not only the telegram block but blocks in general is that society is divided into those who are able to use a vpn to get around blocks and those who are not those who can't get around the block end up in a kind of information blockade. They don't get information that they could be getting. Uh, the result is the society is divided into two parts. Those that can't, uh, what do we have? Uh, low-skilled people, blue-colored people, uh, conventionally speaking, people who see technology who aren't able to do much there, maybe poorly educated. And then there is people who can get around blocks. They have a higher level of education, they're more highly qualified, and as a result they can access the information that exists. Uh, It makes sense that they'll have a different point of view regarding the ongoing processes, in particular in Russia, but really everywhere. Uh, And that very much divides, splits society. In my view, that's the most frightening thing that's happening right now that could all lead to a massive, huge civil war sooner or later. Okay. I'm hanging in there, folks. Sorry, you can't answer. Yes. <laughs> you don't. We're hanging you in. You don't have a voice here. All right, so let's get specific here about how exactly, legally speaking, does the Russian government regulate the Internet? And what laws in particular is Telegram actually breaking? Mrs. Lawyer Smith? All right, yes. So I am not actually a oh, lawyer, no? but no, I'm not. But do you know who is? One, Demir Ganadinov. Demir works for the International Human Rights Group or Network, Agora. Agora. Say Agora. Say, say that again because you, just, you swallowed Agora. Agora is like a famous right, thing. Okay. All right. Human Rights Group or Network, Agora. 
where he specializes in cases related to freedom of expression and freedom of the internet. And specifically, perfect for this here podcast, he is representing Telegram internationally in their appeal to the European Court of Human Rights. Actually, the Russian government started to pay attention to the internet in uh, 2011 or 12, something like that. Before, frankly speaking, the Russian internet was one of the, the most free parts of the global net. Uh, so you could write anything, download or upload anything, and nobody cared. After that, the first law on blacklist of websites was adopted. And since 2012, for about five years, blocking and filtering were the, the only tools in their toolbox. So uh, after that, when they realized that blocking is ineffective it's in itself, they started to prosecute certain users targeting those who disseminate the information. For example, last year, the Minister of Communications said that he, he confirmed that blocking and filtering is ineffective uh, after they failed to block, for example, Root Tracker, which is one of the biggest torrent trackers in Russia. Uh, and he said that now we should start finding and prosecuting those who share illegal information, illegal in, the, in their meaning, in their understanding. And we see now that we are trying to refocus the activities towards criminal, criminal and administrative prosecution of uh, the Internet users. So we see the, the number of criminal cases increased, uh, uh, the number of people in jail. It's For, for now, it's, I think, more than 100 uh, uh, Internet users were put in jail just for liking or reposting something online. So, so now they, they, they uh, prosecuted a, a few uh, Telegram users for sharing something in public channels. And they started to mention uh, when uh, reporting on, for example, prevention on some terrorist, te terrorist attack, they start mentioning that the terrorists use Telegram to communicate and to co coordinate the activities. So they're trying to... to spoil the image of, of the messenger in the public opinion. Mm, okay. So there's also like an information, little information warfare going on there? Yeah, they're, they're, they're trying to, to, to uh, uh, promote the idea that the telegram is used by terrorists and drug dealers. So when you turn on the uh, state-owned TV channels, you see that telegram is a place where you can buy drugs. I don't know whether it's an advertising or not. <laughs> but, uh, anyway. So Demir's talking about this concept of Telegram being, oh, the image of Telegram, right? Being shifted into this app that's used by terrorists and stomping ground for terrorists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that actually ends up being the sort of legal basis for what gets Telegram blocked. And it's done via this packet or set of laws called the Yaravaya laws. That's the colloquial name for this, this packet of, of laws that we're going to get into. And it's named after one of the law's main authors, Irina Yaravaya. She's the deputy chairman of the state Duma from, from United Russia. Party. The party, yeah. Putin party. Well, no, Putin sometimes, whatever. United Russia. Well, moving on. <laughs> he likes to go off party sometimes. 
So the Yaravaya laws are formally why Russia is blocking Telegram for breaking these laws. Right. So, so the Yaravaya laws are actually a duo of kind of counterterrorism and public safety bills. And they were passed back in 2016. Um, like many governments fighting terrorism around the globe, the Russian government is pro-data hoarding. So specifically part of the one part of this duo of laws of the Yaravaya laws stipulate that telecom companies must store voice calls, data, images, text messages, of the users um, for six months and the metadata on these things as well. So things like time, location, sender, and recipients of, of messages for three years. And in addition, online service, three years. Yeah, the metadata needs to be safe for three years. So in addition, online services such as like uh, messaging services, email, and social networks that use encrypted data are required to permit the Russian Federal Security Service, FSB, to access and read their encrypted communications. Dun, dun, dun. Things are becoming relevant. We're bringing it around, folks. So uh, the law and reality are different. Um, as in companies adhere to these regulations to varying degrees, partially because the requirements are not entirely clear and the date at which these laws are actually set to come into effect keeps getting postponed. So telecom companies as of July 1st of 2018 uh, were required to at least store text and voice messages for 30 days. And as of now, the more burdensome regulation uh, that all user correspondence be stored for six months is set to take effect on October 1st. So, so anyway, the second law in this Yaravara packet, as it's called, and the part of the law Telegram is accused of breaking, requires encrypted services to share encryption keys with the FSB. And that came into effect back in late July of 2016. So it's actually been in effect for quite a while. And generally, it's all a bit of a hot mess. But to make this hot mess that is Russian legislation a little bit more cool and palpable 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 Palpable. i spoke with anna and max is a pair of lawyers from team 29 which is an association of lawyers and journalists who focus on freedom of information and they kind of put it bluntly the yaravaya laws give the russian government the right to possess a lot of data and to use it how they see fit so that's sort of what's scary about it there's no control over how the government will use this information um, like any law that is justified by the notion of national security, protecting you from terrorism, blah, 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 the Yarafi laws interfere in the private lives of citizens. So, but since 2011, the RUNET has been regulated by several other laws that censor websites in different ways. And, and we're trying to give you this like kind of general sense of how the internet is regulated and in what Russia. kind of implications in Russia and what kind of implications that has on on access to information, because that is really the end negative effect is that people's access to information is limited. So like Demir talked about, we have individ- actual individuals prosecuted for posting specific content. Uh, an example of that is this 19-year-old film student in the S- Siberian city of Barnal. Is that right? I think so. Uh, whose name is Daniil Markin, and he was charged with inciting hate speech after posting several memes on VK. And in case you've missed, and we, we've been referencing VK, VK is like the Russian Facebook, also founded by Pavel Durov, but that's a story for another time. Um, and so he posted several memes on his VK page that depict religious figures. And one of these memes shows a photoshopped version of the Trinity in which the angels sit around a bomb. And their faces are also like smiley people. They're not like, their yeah. faces are photoshopped. 
Right, right, right. I think they might be famous people, but I didn't recognize any of them. And then another show, Jon Snow, who is a Game of Thrones character, which, Lily, you don't watch oh my that God. show, do you? I have watched it, and you don't need to explain people to people who Jon no, fucking know, Snow but is. I f- no, I understand, but I feel weird referencing it because I don't really okay, know Okay, then I'll Jon do it. Another is. Is John, is, another is Jon Snow as Jesus. But Markin is facing up to five years in prison for this simply for posting memes on his VK. But then we also have laws that deal with technically regulating the runet versus prosecuting individuals. So one of the main tools the Russian government uses to regulate digital space is blocking. Blocking access to specific websites that are reg- that are allegedly breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and most most everyone we spoke to for this episode referenced a particular uh, law, Article 282 Point one, which is colloquially known as the extremism laws and formerly called the organization of extremist communities or community. Extremists can have community also. Yes. Isn't that nice? And if you incite them, we arrest you. <laughs> and that includes so-called extremism that is expressed on the interwebs. So predictably, extremism is one of those things that is extremely ambiguous, and uh, many different things can kind of fall under its umbrella, frighteningly. You have all these like people falling under this umbrella of extremism, like Jehovah Witnesses, extremists, teens posting memes on VK, extremists, vlogger playing Pokemon in a cathedral, Lily? Extremists and offensive to believers. (laughs) Yes. I mean, everyone hates bloggers, but I kind of like them. So, so then you also have entire sites that fall outside of the jurisdiction of Article 282, somehow not extremists, but that based on their content are still blocked. So this ranges from everything from child pornography to LGBT websites like Gay Rue and Parney Plus, which is a sexual and family health site and sites that encourage or enable suicide. And yes, we know it's fucked up that LGBT sites are somehow grouped together with child porn. Just because we put them in the same sentence doesn't mean we equate That's them. your PSA for the day. So, but back to these Yaravai laws. Telegram is, quote unquote, blocked in Russia right now because it's not compliant with said laws. Right. So coming back to our timeline, on July 12th, 2017, the FSB sends a letter to our dear pal Pasha. At this point, Agora, the network of human rights lawyers of which Demir is a part, get involved in the Telegram case. The government requested, uh, on pretext of uh, counterterrorism activities, uh, requested uh, Telegram to provide uh, access to uh, six accounts, six phone numbers, which uh, allegedly were connected to, to Telegram accounts. After that, Telegram, Pavel Durov actually uh, published the information uh, on the request, he he published the, the documents he received from from the government, uh, and uh, also a statement that Telegram will not provide access to correspondence, but they are ready to collaborate with the government on the same level like they do with the others on uh, fighting terrorism and uh, child pornography. He, he, he also published the, the statistics on uh, how many Telegram channels and uh, certain messages they are deleting each month, uh, trying to, to, to limit uh, the spread of hate speech and uh, child pornography. Then the FSB uh, tried to, to 
bring Telegram uh, Messenger to administrative responsibility in Moscow Magistrate. And after that, Pavel Durov uh, published an open call for lawyers who would like to, to try to, to defend Telegram in Russian courts. As he said, they received approximately 200 applications, and we decided to do to, to apply as well. And he, he, he chosen us. After that, we started to work on the case. As you might imagine, the Telegram case surfaces quite a number of, of human rights issues. There's freedom of speech, freedom of media, because there's a lot of media in Telegram, okay? Access to information, which we talked about, and as Demir notes, right to privacy. In 2016, uh, the so-called Yaravaya law was adopted in Russia, which in part obliges all uh, internet service providers, including social networks, to store all users' communications, metadata, metadata and the content within uh, six months, and to provide the government with the access to, to, to all these data. Uh, those internet services uh, which use encryption also should uh, provide the federal security service with the uh, decryption keys. So uh, it's uh, just quite common framework, uh, and there is nothing, there there is no any specification or procedures on how 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 they should do that, how they guarantee the confident confidentiality of this uh, data, and how they protect the users' rights. So in Telegram case, the FSB asked to send the decryption keys on uh, uh, email FSB uh, at fsb.ru, which in fact is is a, a email of uh, the reception of the service. So yeah, no one knows actually how many people in FSB wow. has access to that email. And on their own website, it is written that it is illegal and. Uh, no one should do that. No one should send any sensitive information on that address because it is not safe. Hmm. So Telegram uh, refused to do that. And after entering the case, we, we entered it on the appeal stage. Because uh, uh, the first instance court uh, considered the case without Telegram or representative of the FSB, so it was the judge himself, herself, who, who just uh, looked through the documents within a few minutes and decided to, to find the company. When we entered the case, we tried to, to ask the FSB and the prosecutor on how you gonna provide and prote- provide safety and protect uh, the user's data. So in case Telegram decides to provide you with that access, what should you do to, to protect users? Uh, and they said that there, there is no obligations uh, to, to protect users in the law. So we are not speaking about these issues. The only point is that Telegram failed to comply with the request. And that's it. So, in fact, uh, that case reflected the position of the government that secure communications must not exist at all because they want access to all communications which goes through uh, Russian networks. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So all the, 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 all the hearings took not more than half an hour. So they didn't 
listen to the arguments. They just um, try to, to follow the procedure uh, and that's it. Mm. Are, are there other cases that are similar to telegrams but just haven't gotten as much press? You mean in Russia? Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, there are certain internet messengers which are now blocked. For example, Zello, Blackberry Messenger, Emo, Line, uh, and some others. But they were blocked without a trial, just on the telecom uh, authorities order because they did not uh, respond to the request and they didn't enter that list of internet service providers which is operated by Roskomnadzor telecom mm. agency in Russia so uh, there were not no formal uh, court trials on that cases uh, telegram was the first one who decided to to go through russian courts and to see how it how it would be uh, and now we see that they, actually it makes no sense <laughs> to, to to deal with these uh, issues in russian courts so they are only needed just as the necessary steps to uh, apply to the european court of human rights what we actually we did so we now we submitted two complaints to the european court already on the telegram case and that was the only reason to to go through russian courts Except to show, just to show the public what they are and how they do. In the case of the like European Court case, like let's say I don't know, they rule in favor of you. What is the result in Russia? Like, does the Russian government pay attention to that at all? Well, it depends upon upon an issue, upon a case. Uh, in some cases, uh, Russian uh, government absolutely comply with the European court positions and especially on humanitarian issues when there is no political motivation. You're right uh, asking the, that, that, that question uh, especially in regards of the internet because uh, the internet regulation and control of the information are absolutely uh, politically motivated, politically based issues. Mm-hmm. So, so, so uh, we definitely do not uh, expect that even if uh, the European court will find that the Yaravaya law violates uh, the fundamental rights in itself, uh, uh, the Russian government will uh, cancel, will dismiss the law. So no, absolutely. But uh, uh, we, uh, from the other other side, we understand that, the, for example, speaking about the European Court, its positions will define the standards not only for Russia but for all members of the Council of Europe. And as far as the standards, we are now just in the beginning of building the standards on international level. It's a great opportunity to to participate. I believe it's not on the Russian case. Okay. So we've been bandying about this name, Roskomnadzor. Uh, Roskomnadzor, as Demir mentioned, is the telecom authority in Russia and the adversary, albeit arguably an unworthy adversary, adversary in the story of Telegram v. Russia. So Professor Lokut gave us the rundown on Roskomnadzor. It's really interesting because if you ask most people, well, who have heard of Roskomnadzor at all... <laughs> they will usually say, oh, these are the Russian internet censors. In fact, it's it, they're actually not just responsible for the internet in Russia, but actually for censorship or oversight and media and communications overall. 
right? So they, they are responsible for electronic media, mass communications, information technology, telecommunications, uh, personal data, radio frequencies, all of those things. But they're very rarely in the news for any of those other things, but mostly because of the stuff that they do um, on the Russian internet. And so obviously there were government bodies in Russia responsible for, you know, media censorship before that. But Roskomnadzor in its present form uh, was founded in 2008, kind of reestablished as this new federal service for supervision of telecommunications and information technology. And before that, it was just a subdivision of the cultural ministry or ministry of culture. Um, and so since 2008, it's become its own executive body responsible for censorship and oversight uh, of the media and communications in Russia. And, and they very quickly established themselves, especially kind of a very public presence in, in terms of Internet censorship and dealing with Internet content and Internet communications. And it's, it's also a really interesting body in that for a long time, um, the agency itself has sort of claimed that, well, we don't really ban anything. We just tell or we, we just take in complaints or requests from other people and other agencies, and then we tell the ISPs what to block. But essentially, of course, they, they are essentially responsible for, you know, things like the Russian Internet uh, blacklist, which is a registry of all the websites that are blocked or web pages that are blocked in Russia for, for various reasons. So they administer the, the blacklist. And then they, of course, also work together with other agencies. So, for instance, if somebody has a complaint that is related to drug sales online, it usually goes to the federal drug control body, and then they can you know, go to Roskomnadzor and say, we've identified these websites that we think should be blocked, right? And then Roskomnadzor will block or will tell the ISPs to block the websites. Roskomnadzor has control over their so-called register, this list of forbidden sites. So we, I keep saying, or we keep saying forbidden rather than blocked or like making a distinction because a site in, in Roskomnadzor's register, this list, it usually receives a warning before it is actively technically blocked. So at any given moment, not all of the sites in Roskomnadzor's so-called blacklist are being blocked. That makes sense? Yes. So this is a point I want to clarify because I don't care if you think it makes sense. I'm make it make sense more. There's a full Roscom register. Ros I just can I not say Roscom Nadzor? I don't care. Say whatever you want. I call them Rossi. <laughs> okay. For short. Or Roscom. But I'm talking about Roscom Nadzor. Um, register. There's a full Roscom register of forbidden sites. So that means they are not necessarily technically being blocked. And that's what we call the blacklist. And it's not publicly available. So what we do see, we see the result. We see the actually blocked sites that have been passed over to the internet service providers so that the internet service providers can block these sites via their IPs, as we've been talking about, IP addresses. And in Russian, this, this part of the blacklist that's actually being blocked, it's called the Vygruska, which is roughly translated to the unloading, it's a noun, the unloading or the dump. This is actually a word that Roskomnadzor created. 
And it's very slangy sounding, so I just want to like draw attention to that. It's not like a word that is used in other contexts. Um, and it's made from the verb regruzit, which sort of means like unpack and like is in essence the opposite of upload, which would be download, but it's not the word for download. It's not the word for uh, download. And in okay. this case, this special word regruska that Raskamnazor invented actually is used to describe the actual file the actual like thing that Roskamnazor gives to the internet service providers and it's like block. Okay, but how, wait, so so you've kind of mentioned like different ways in which a site can end up on this block list, but we've broken it down into four. So what are those guys? How they get on Roskamnazor's naughty list. Um, first, <laughs> saucy. <laughs> there's, there's four main ways that we've broken it down into. First off, we have the courts. So the courts can decide that something should be blocked, should be forget, forbidden, and request that it be blocked by Roskam Nadzor. And that is what happened with Telegram. So Roskam asked Moscow's Tagansky District Court to block Telegram following Durov's refusal to hand over those encryption keys to the six Telegram accounts. Number two, we have the big loophole which is the Federal Public Prosecution Office. They can request that something be put into Roscom's blacklist without any court ruling. So this is important. That's why I, I'm referring to it as the loophole. There's no protocol for verifying why it got put into the blacklist or for sort of being able to combat it. It's kind of one of those opaque decisions. Number three... Various other federal bodies can request that Roscom block a given site or service that can be other nodzors, which are like nodzor in Russian is like supervision oversight. So other nodzors or other ministries like the Ministry of Communications and the taxman will request that casinos be blocked. And funnily enough, the tax agency is the most active participant in the site blocking bonanza. Oh, lastly, Roscom itself uh, can request itself to block pornography-related things. So that includes child pornography, but in general, like, I don't know if there's some other kind of illegal pornography happening. All right, so yes, Roscom Nadzor administers the list, and they send the ISPs, or internet service providers, the which is like, in America, it's like Comcast or Optimum, those sorts of things, uh, the Vigruska, or dump with a list of websites and their associated IP addresses. Fresh for blocking. So here's the thing. Here's the hitch. Telegram is not a website. Ah, what? What? It's an app. Okay, they actually have a web version, but don't even go there because nobody uses it and just forget that I said that. Bing. And, and this matters that it's an app and not a website because the way a website connects to the internet and the way an app connects to the internet are different, sort of. Uh, so a website is like me and potatoes internet. It, it exists, like the code for the website exists in one place in the cloud on a server. You type in the domain, terrorism.com, twitter.com into the URL She's bar. She's in Russia. And She's in Russia.com. Yeah. That domain is like a pretty face for the real name or location of the website, which is the which IP Which you already address. explained um, and people should know by now. Should be experts. Right, right, right. So, so with known IP address in hand, your phone or computer or whatever device 
iPad, if you're one of those people, now goes to your ISP, your internet service provider, Comcast Optimum, and says, please, may I have this website? And in short, a website lives at one address. This is, you know, mostly true. It, it really is mostly true. And specifically one easily blocked website. So one easily blocked address. Right. It's just one address. How hard could it be to block one address? So on the other hand, when a desktop app like Telegram needs to talk to a server, a server connected to the internet. In this case, when the Telegram app needs to talk to its servers, it doesn't like type in a domain for you. It's not like telegram.com. It can talk to an arbitrary set of IPs and those IPs can change as long as the request is ultimately delivered to a Telegram server of which Telegram has many all over the world. So this makes it very difficult to block. Right, so let's say Roscom adds some site like gay.ru to its Vigruska. Uh, this instructs, so it hands this over to the ISPs and instructs the ISPs that that site is now banned. It's time to ban the IP addresses associated with that site. So just as an experiment, my VPN is not on and I'm going to visit gay.ru right now. Gay.ru in St. Petersburg, like my IP address is St. Petersburg because I'm using my Wi-Fi and I'm not using a VPN. And I get a page that says, respected client, the given resource is blocked via the decision or like by rule of the decision of the organs of, is it not translated as organs? Organization, maybe? No, definitely not. Okay, organ. it's like agency, the government <laughs> yeah. power agencies. Like there's the word organ, government power, you get it. And then there's like a whole list of things like you, links that you can that go to Roscommonsor. Actually, you can you can <laughs> learn about why it was blocked. Um, so that's fun. And there's even an ad. So they sell ads on the block pages. That's fucked up. Football in I HD. Just, who is getting? Oh my god, that's so fucked. <laughs> Wait, who's making the money? The ISP or Roscommonsor? Who is making the money? Well, I see that my like Wi-Fi is sort of like hosting this page in that it not hosting that's not technically oh, right. so maybe it's the isp yeah because yeah, it has like its little logo like that's fucked they well. and so they're advertising on the block site it's very funny yeah. all right gotta love the capitalists okay so that was a fun excursion into the world of the russian internet but honestly like we're sort of i mean using a site like gayru i don't know you it's sort of like not that surprising that it's blocked in Russia, but like I come across random block sites all the time. And a lot of that is the consequence of the Telegram block, as we'll get into. But like, I don't know, a lot of like Asian media sites are randomly blocked, just like news sites. Mm. Unclear. Mm. So like blocking one individual website, it's fairly straightforward. But with an app like Telegram. Well, yeah, with an app like Telegram, it's, it's more like a game of whack-a-mole. Can you imagine? So Roscom can tell the ISPs okay, block this certain set of IP addresses. So like cover up that hole where the mole came out. And they've determined that those IP addresses are associated with Telegram or Telegram uses them. And then there's a whole bunch of other ones that Telegram starts using that have not been identified by Roscom. So Telegram's still working and it pops up in another place um, while Roscom is trying to block it somewhere else. So for the most part, Telegram in this game of whack-a-mole can stay alive, can stay connected to the internets. Another thing that can make it difficult to block an app or sites in general 
particularly in Russia versus other countries like Kazakhstan or China, is this thing called an anonymous system. Right, right. Okay. So the internet is not just a utopian world of evenly distributed servers that can talk to any one other server anytime it pleases. It's actually a collection of networks. Slow down, Smithy. Little clusters of servers and cables and all the other physical real world stuff that makes it possible for computers to talk to each other. I feel like sometimes people forget that, that there's like fucking cables along the bottom of the ocean and stuff connecting the internet. Which is still crazy to me. Okay, so these smaller networks that make up the mega network of the internet are called autonomous systems. And they're, they're operated by ISPs like Optimum and Compact, Comcast, as I've been using exam- as examples, universities, companies, etc. And basically all you need to know is that when you make a request to a server in, I don't know, Germany perhaps, and you live in New York City, that request has to travel through multiple chained autonomous systems. And when you say make a request, you just mean like go on to a German site because you don't like do anything as a user. Right, right. You're not. Yeah, exactly. When your computer makes a request. You don't know what you're doing when you use the internet. Shock. Yeah. And the key here is that is, is in the numbers. So there are about two to three thousand autonomous systems in Russia that, that connect to autonomous systems out, outside of Russia. That's from a total number of about seven point five thousand. Well, there are only four outwardly connecting autonomous systems in Kazakhstan that connect to other countries and only 10 in China. So two to 3,000 versus four or 10. And that means that in Russia, there's a whole lot more talking between anonymous systems inside of Russia and outside of Russia where the nefarious, unregulated internet lives and thrives. In Kazakhstan or China, much less so, making blocking much easier there easier to control the internet. Um, So generally counting the outward-facing connections in all these little networks, the autonomous systems, uh, it's a good way to judge how open the internet is in a given region. But how, technically speaking, does the block actually take place? And how does Telegram respond? According to Mikhail's investigations, it's not only Roscommon and its lonesome determining which IPs to block. At least it wasn't at one point. He says back in April, major internet conglomerate Mail.ru had a role to play in the block. Вот, а Mail.ru использовала следующую схему, поскольку у них есть технологии, у них есть инженеры, чего нету Роскомнадзора само собой. Но это не Right, so Mail.ru used the following scheme. Uh, given they have the technology and the engineers, something uh, Roskomnadzor doesn't really have. Uh, well, it's not their function to have it, actually. So Mail.ru did the following. Uh, given they have a source system and a rather uh, serious, powerful one at that, they launched what are called spiders, uh, crawlers probably in English, uh, not important. So what happens? Uh, coming from Mail.ru's servers, they start scanning all internet addresses that exist. Uh, there are about 4 billion of them. That might seem like a lot, but when you have powerful enough machines, theoretically you can do that. Uh, meaning search engines exist that go around the entire internet and gather all the pages on the internet and remember them. Uh, basically, Mail.ru has a search engine, so they can do that. Uh, but here they're doing it. They're scanning the internet not to save or remember a certain page, grab it and index it. Собственно, у Mail.ru есть поисковая машина же. Они это умеют делать. 
Но они это делают не для того, чтобы там сохранить какую-то страничку себе, да, там куда-то забрать, ее проиндексировать. Они это делали для того, чтобы определить, а не является ли данный IP-адрес шлюзом Телеграма. Does any given specific IP address act as a gateway for Telegram? And for some time that worked for them. They were able to do that. Uh, before we figured out what was going on, uh, so they move forward. Uh, they're not working post-factum, they're working ahead. So they went around, they grab an IP address acting as a gateway for Telegram, and off goes an abuse report to the hosting service, to whoever the IP address belongs to. To the operator uh, and if the operator was on it working quickly and they report the block of that IP address to the blacklist so it's all pretty simple and actually using that method you can block telegram if you go ahead like that so it's not after telegram has already communicated with that IP address but before but again that requires a massive amount of power and highly qualified personnel to be able to implement that kind of system and it's absolutely clear that Roskomnadzor doesn't have the personnel or the machine capacity to do that that was my rule group и совершенно однозначно, что у Роскомнадзора так, таких э, ни людей, ни мощностей не было. Это сделал им Mail.ru Group. And uh, we figured it out pretty easily. We had installed Telegram's proxy on our servers on DigitalOcean, uh, which is a hosting service. And yes, so a request comes from a specific IP address. After a little time, an abuse report follows. And then, after a little more time, it's blocked. Uh, we discovered that the IP address belongs to Mail.ru group. Uh, well, there were several there, maybe dozens of IP addresses that they were using. And, well, the indicators that it was them uh, were absolutely clear, evident. Uh, by the way, they ended up confirming it themselves, admitting to it. Well, not exactly themselves, they said it was one of their clients. Well, in the end, we need to defend ourselves against this, that sort of thing. And it's possible to defend against that pretty simply, uh, disrupt the connectedness of Mail.ru group. Uh, meaning networks, the remaining networks, if they've installed some strange resource like a Telegram proxy, and by the way, that's not a hard thing to set up, any sysadmin can do that. The admin of the IP address host, where the Telegram proxy is being set up, and it can break the connection with all the autonomous systems. Uh, remember I talked about autonomous systems? So they, the networks, can disrupt their connection with Mail.ru groups, autonomous systems, and simply not accept packets from those autonomous systems. So all the admins that were bothered by Mail.ru groups' behavior with Telegram, when they found out about it, and there was a solid number of them, they disrupted their connections with those autonomous systems, they blocked Mail.ru groups' autonomous systems, so accordingly, when Mail.ru can't send that crawler out to check for the presence of a Telegram proxy, uh, because the connection with some network has been disrupted, 
Well, first of all, on the one hand, the whole process becomes pointless. And on the other hand, uh, Mail.ru Group's position in the Internet gets worse. Uh, no one, uh, meaning no other network, networks uh, want to talk to them. So the cap capability of their search engine gets worse, and more generally, the quality of their service. And as soon as they realized that, they stopped doing what they had been doing. So there you have it, an example of what the Internet Protection Society has done, revealing the whole story. Yeah, and, and funnily enough, a few days after Mikhail's public accusation, Mail.ru released their own proxy servers for using Telegram. So noble of them. So noble. The Telegram v. Russia story is, as you may be gathering by now, a battle on two fronts, at least insofar as the way we've constructed the narrative. There's the technical and the legal fronts. So to learn more about how the technical front panned out, I talked to... Philip Kulin, who is the head of a web hosting service turned self-proclaimed internet censorship expert and proclaimed by others blocking expert, as in the Telegram block. Phil's claim to fame is a site, Usher2, Usher, like Usher the singer, 2, dot club. Does anyone get the reference? If you do, you can, you can, you can lovingly pat yourself on your own back. And you can also maybe tell us somehow so that we can say that, you know, maybe we'll, we'll reward you with nothing. <laughs> Honestly, if you... No, actually, I'm not going to promise you anything. You want to give them Yeah, you get rewarded with nothing. Yeah, you don't get a sticker because then all you people just lie to us for our amazing stickers. You could leave us a voicemail telling us what you think Usher to But they is. could just look it up, Lily. <laughs> Fuck, the internet is so full of information. <laughs> <laughs> they need to block it. You know Just for a day. Never mind. Um, All right. So what does this Usher2.club site do? It's, yeah. So it's really worth checking out. It is a site that lists slash monitors the blocked sites in Russia. It does this by monitoring the number of IP addresses. I don't know if you guys remember that, that are blocked. How did this site come about that made him famous? The site that made him famous. About a year ago, Phil got access to the list of blocked sites or blocked IP addresses, the data, which is created and managed by Roskomnadzor. Just, just beat that into your little heads. It's an important <laughs> Roskomnadzor. Tattoo it on yourself. Um, <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, I'm going to get a Roskomnadzor tattoo. My first tattoo. Get it on your butt like easy. So he got, he got this data via some friends because the data itself isn't actually publicly available so he has some friends in some high places clearly um so phil starts posting the data on like in his own social networks just in posts with little graphs like for example showing the i don't know number of block sites over time and he does it just for his friends to see and at some point he puts together a site to display all this data for anyone to see and that is Usher 2. And so in April, when Roskomnadzor starts blocking Telegram, Phil's site suddenly and serendipitously becomes extremely, extremely relevant to a shit ton of people. And so Phil starts to become low-key famous in the internet freedom community. Um, he, he's like been a figure in the, in the internet community 
pre-Telegram block, definitely. But yeah, after the Telegram block, he starts becoming one of the main spokespeople for talking about internet censorship, etc. Значит, там э, до сих пор я считаю, что много этапов, и поскольку мы, у нас нет своих людей в Роскомнадзоре, не всегда понятно, что они делают. Например, мне не очень понятно, что они делают сейчас. Ну, то есть, я могу предположить, so Phil says, still, I think there are a lot of steps, and since we don't have people in Роскомнадзор, it's not always clear what they're doing. For example, right now it's not clear to me what they're doing. I can guess, conjecture, but I don't really get what they're doing precisely. The process that is happening at Roskamnadzor right now, regarding the Telegram block, it's not clear, but I'll explain. The first thing they did was block all the Telegram networks that were public. Yes, Telegram had their own IP addresses that were joined with a public network. Networks where people broadcast like, this network is mine. And Telegram was subscribed to some of these networks. They used them. And Roskamnadzor immediately joyfully blocked them. And the same thing happened with BlackBerry, the same thing happened with Zello, which they blocked those as well. Just nobody cares about them. That was me butting in. But anyway, back to Phil. Turns out that Telegram doesn't only use its own servers. It turns out that Telegram had a lot already prepared on Amazon servers, Amazon Cloud. So they grab a virtual server on Amazon, and then there's two ways of using the server. So here you can't say that Telegram used only one thing, otherwise it would have been really simple to block, right? Right. Right, Phil. So Telegram used Amazon, for example, as... Okay, so basically there was a file on an Amazon server in which was written where to go right now, what IP addresses are not blocked. For example, all the Telegram IP addresses get blocked. A program runs with a list of all potential usable IP addresses and asks, hey, can you tell me what's still not blocked? And the program returns, go to this IP, it's still not blocked here. And the second use for Amazon servers, that would actually be proxy servers that allow one to reach the servers of Telegram itself. So when Roskamnadzor started to block Amazon, it became evident that... Well, Telegram has a whole lot of money, and it hadn't limited itself to Amazon alone. It couldn't care less when they blocked Amazon. Telegram just closed up shop there and opened somewhere else. And so that's when these fan blocks started, right? These big, well, as they're called, blanket blocks. And they blocked all the big platforms. Ну, большие, как или ковровые, да, блокировки, как мы называем, да, когда по большим площадям. Right, so, so pretty early on, Roskomnadzor realizes Telegram is using Amazon servers to get around the block. So they just sort of start blocking IPs willy-nilly. Amazon IPs, Google IPs, Microsoft IPs. At the height of the block, Roscom had ordered the block of about 18 million IP addresses. Actually, to be exact, 17,974,623 with the aim of blocking Telegram. Uh, the result, however, is that Telegram mostly still works, but a whole lot of other stuff that uses Amazon or Google or Microsoft web services ends up getting blocked or disrupted. Everything from Spotify and Odnoklasniki, which is like another uh, social network, social network, uh, to some of Roscom's own sites. Lol. So let me just butt my little head in there um, about that seventeen million. 974,623 stat. That is from April 28th. And 
there's a little little anecdote here about numbers. So that's like the peak of the of the IP address block, and it happens early on, right? Late April. But actually, on April seventeenth, so the day after the block, for just about an hour, over eighteen million IP addresses were blocked, but they were quickly deleted. So they were like added to the list and deleted within a couple of hours. Um, and that number didn't get a, a, up to eighteen million again until April twenty eighth. But up until April twenty first, stay with me here, people. Phil's site, which displays all that all the statistics of blocked IP addresses was displaying the number at a little over 19 million, close to 20 million. So Phil did a correction on April 21st, and he realized that that had been a mistake, and actually the number was around 18 million. Yet Ross Kamnadzor had been telling all mainstream media that the number was about 20 million, 19 plus million. And that's, that's the number that's reported in like all the major Russian language uh, news outlets from that time. It's the number that Phil's site, Usher 2, had been incorrectly displaying for just a few days. Phil's conclusion? Uh. Ross Kamnazor hadn't bothered to check their own stats. They were taking advantage of the convenience of Usher 2 for their own statistics and citing his site. <laughs> the That's media. amazing. Yeah. Uh. Which is, you know, what can you do? But the thing is, he's getting the data from them. He just had a mistake in his like in his display right, so right, it's like right. it's a circular thing and the thing is telegram as we said is not actually really blocked at least practically speaking so Roskamnadzor at one point may have successfully blocked those 18-ish million ip addresses at the get-go back in april and telegram was barely working without a vpn or proxy for about a week right after the block but now the Telegram app mostly works on phones and computers in Russia without a, without a third-party VPN or proxy. In my personal experience, it, it mostly works, but it feels unreliable because, like, you don't know at any point it could sort of just, like, be poopy. It just poops out on yeah. you. And that was happening, like, with recent updates, it was happening less often. They, the recent updates with the built-in proxy from Telegram stabilized the app, meaning that it stops working maybe like once a week or something. But oddly enough, uh, that was the case until the past few days on July 30th and until now, so the first few days of August, the, my on my phone, which I have MTS, I don't know what's going on, um, Telegram has been consistently not working, so I have, the, I have to use the VPN a lot. Sad. Sad. So if we conclude for the most part, the block is not working. Why does Roscom keep up the charade? As in like, why do they continue to block millions of IPs, nearly 3.79 million IPs as of this day we are recording? Thanks, Usher, too. Um, yeah, like why do they keep doing this if it's clearly not actually working? Well, yeah, so Phil thinks the whole continuation, like the, the come down from the peak to only be blocking like 3.79 million IPs right now, it's kind of a, a saving face surrender move. Meaning the fact that Roskamnadzor is only blocking three plus million IPs out of the 18 million they were blocking at one point, it's pretty clearly a sign they're giving up, but not entirely. They're like, we're still here fighting. But they haven't, so they haven't surrendered to Telegram completely. But as Phil says, 3.8 million that charade is pretty much pointless. 
Yeah, it also just kind of feels to me like a bureaucratic thing. Like they already started blocking, so they can't stop now. Like it would be too much paperwork and effort to like steer the ship in a different direction. Yeah, they're like, we're blocking Telegram. We have to actually do it or else we're not doing it. Yeah, then we have to do something else, which seems harder. So yeah, yeah, Roscom's reputation has um, suffered for this, at least amongst some groups. And we asked Loka what the general sentiment towards them now is. I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I kind of, I would be hesitant to speak about the general public, but I think especially people who are like a little more internet savvy or people who follow the whole sort of scene of, you know, like internet freedom, like they, they just, like they're other, either very kind of not angry with them. Well, I mean, they think that they're bumbling and stupid and they do a lot more damage because they don't know what they're doing. Um, so nobody really sees them like as a, as an actual valid threat, despite the fact that they do manage to block a lot of websites and, you know, fine or arrest a certain number of people for doing things online. But I think mostly people are just kind of miffed with them that they're so like, even when they try to, you know, ban something like telegram, they can't even manage to do that properly. And instead they ban half the internet. So it's like, it's just like it's a bear and it has like a, a big stick and it's basically like smashing everything around them instead of like, you know, like if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So like this is this bear just kind of crashing everything around it when it's just chasing one tiny little mosquito or something, you know, yeah. probably a metaphor for Roscom Nadzor. So, yeah, this whole Roscom Nadzor... <laughs> This whole Roscom Nadzor telegram blocking farce, one could call it, reminds me of a certain theory. It's a theory thought up by two wise scholars. Oh, I, I believe their names are Oliver Samiti and Samiti Fearman. Yes, yes. From, this, from Samiti Media, I do believe. <laughs> so basically this theory, this concept, um, is that some, it's when something is planned or exists on paper, but doesn't actually ever fully exist in the real world. So it's a concept that we've encountered a lot in Soviet and post-Soviet history. A nice concrete example for those materialists out there is the several large-scale architectural projects that were planned in the early Soviet era, but were never built. And one example is the Palace of the Soviets in Moscow. It was supposed to be this massive monumental building, the tallest building in the world at the time, Um, It was in the early 30s, and it was supposed to be built on the site of the demolished Cathedral of Christ the Savior, Cathedral of Christ the Savior version one, not the one that Pussy Riot offended believers in, Mm. because that was when it was rebuilt. So it was demolished, and there was a whole contest for the design of this Palace of the Soviets building. And there were plans published and, you know, like drawings of, and designs published in magazines. And construction actually started in 1937, but the thing was never built. The war, etc. Another good example of this phenomenon, this theory that we encounter, is the Soviet version of Israel, for lack of a better description, the place called Biribijan. And that place does, in fact, exist. And we have an episode on it. So go listen. You should just write down all the episodes you need to listen to later. <laughs> Make a list. But that place, it was, it was sort of marketed, it was advertised, it was presented as this homeland uh, 
for Soviet Jews, but it never actually fulfilled that promise. It never became, in reality, a fully-fledged destination for Soviet Jews. So we used to call this phenomenon that I'm trying to describe the absence theory, absence theory. But Smith, because she's so smart, came up with a shiny new name for it. Smith? Failure to materialize. Failure to materialize. So shiny. Gotta go put my sunnies on. <laughs> yes. Blazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. Yeah. Failure to materialize. It's, that's very nice. Yeah. So this whole Roskamnadzor telegram case is just riddled with this failure to materialize syndrome. And when I talked to our trusty block expert, Phil, he gave me a nice concrete example of how Rossi's paper plans fail to materialize in the form of the VPN laws. Они просто не сделали. Ну, то есть, для, например, вот я поясню такой краткий курс, да, что сделали с VPN и анонимайзерами, да. Okay, so Phil tells me, Roskamnadzor wants to block VPNs, but they just didn't make the tech that would make it possible to block VPNs. So, for example, I'll give you a little intro course on what was done with VPNs and anonymous proxies. The procedure was as follows. The operating agency, whatever, some kind of law enforcement body, they say, okay, let's block. Well, let's not block. They say, let's pay attention to this particular VPN. This VPN should be fulfilling, fulfilling the blocking law. So what are they getting at? They're not blocking the VPN itself. They want the VPN to block prohibited information so that you can't use it to get around stuff, right? So they say, Roskamnadzor, we're interested in this VPN. And Roskamnadzor finds that VPN, and there's a whole procedure written in the law for how it finds the VPN, who gets fined if they don't hand over information about the VPN. And once they find the VPN, they say, guys, you have 30 days, you need to start fulfilling the blocking law. You need to start blocking for, like, blocked sites. Officially blocked sites. sites. We'll register you, here's the list of the sites, here's the Vigruska, and we'll be checking how you fulfill this law. But access to the list and respectively the verification of the VPN, if it's doing its job, if it's blocking the site, all of that, technically speaking, does not exist. All this is written out in the law, there's a standard, the whole process is written out, but it hasn't been realized. So right now there's not a single VPN fulfilling the law because there's nothing to fulfill. So for example, I could go make a VPN and wave my flag saying, saying that I want to access the list, I want to activate, I want to block the forbidden sites. The only thing is, if I did that, in 30 days, Roskamnadzor would, would make me one. I mean, they make a program so that it would work. Meaning, if, if there was all that noise in the mainstream media, then they would just write a program to implement the law in, within the 30 days. But really, now, it doesn't exist. Tomorrow, I, cannot, I can't set up, I can't access that list and start blocking sites that, that they want on my VPN. Lols, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so let me bring this home, ladies. The Telegram block exists legally speaking, Yaravaya, et cetera, et cetera, Pasha. And even technically speaking, still got those 3.8 million IPs, and sometimes little Telega doesn't work, like for me, the past few days. But does the block actually exist, practically speaking? No. The answer is no. 
Goodbye. A very, very big thanks to Tanya, Demir, Mikhail, Phil, Anna, and Max from Team 29, Andre for graciously doing the voiceover work, and Yulia who made our beautiful cover art. Yes, thank you, thank you so much. Also, don't forget, be sure to tune in next week for part two of Old Telegram. This is not it. This is only part one. Right. Next week, we'll be talking more about Pavel Durov, the character, so handsome, how encryption really works, and what we truly believe is the government's motivation for blocking our beloved messenger. Um, Also, we will not have yet recorded the second episode by the time you listen to this. So if you have questions about the case, you feel like we we glazed over something you don't quite understand, give us a call at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six or on Skype at She's in Russia and leave a message and we may answer it on part two. Also, if your name is Pavel Durov and you feel compelled to de-hermit for a bit, please message us at either Olivia Cap or Girl Guilt. On Twitter. And on Twitter. No, not on Twitter. <laughs> oh, on Telegram. <laughs> is that my Telegram name? Yeah, on Telegram. Oh my god, that's right. so stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, if you're Pavel Durov and you're listening, um, please stop being a douchebag and message and us. Talk to us. <laughs> All right. God, that's um, so sad. Right. So, and then, of course, our regular closeout, as always, subscribe to our monthly image based newsletter at she'sinrussia.com. Head over to our Telegram channel and subscribe. And same with Twitter at she's in Russia. And support us. Oh. Support us. Don't yes. Forget. Head on over to patreon.com slash she's in Russia and we will see you next week with part two. <laughs>